A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. Our four-year anniversary show is next week, May 7th, at Littlefield in Brooklyn. It should be an amazing show with Ophira Eisenberg, Carl Zimmer, John Ronson, Jennifer Roulette, and Sarah Schlesinger. Go to storycollider.org for more details. This week's story is from Sarah Seeger as part of the Cambridge Science Festival. The story was recorded in April 2014 at the Davis Square Theater in Somerville, Massachusetts. Thanks for coming out here, and I'm going to do my talk, my story, like going back to the time of, so you'll follow along and you'll know where right now I'm starting. It's January 2007. I'm just starting my new job at MIT. I'm excited to become a professor. MIT is literally um, the best place on earth. That's what we call it at MIT, and that's just for the Harvard people here in the room. <laughs> um, you can cut that part out if you podcast this, okay? So... Um, yeah, so MIT literally, I think of it even now as the best place on Earth. And they've hired me to help jumpstart in exoplanets. Exoplanets are planets that orbit stars other than the sun. Our sun is a star, and our sun has planets. So we naturally expect that other stars or other suns have planets also, and they do. And in the last 20 years, astronomers have found that, statistically speaking, every single star in our Milky Way galaxy should have at least one planet. But the crazy thing is that our own solar system, a type like our solar system, appears to be actually quite rare. We haven't found any copies of it so far, although our solar system is quite hard to find. Instead, we have found really crazy things like planetary systems that have a Jupiter um, where Mercury should be, or some planets that are so hot, their surfaces are hot enough to melt rock with liquid lava, we think with liquid liquid lava oceans. But we're really looking for, um, and what I... We're really trying to find other planets that could be just like Earth. And in, back in 2007, starting at MIT, I'm 36 years old. I have tenure, so I can invest in more risky long-term projects. And that's my whole goal, is to try to find a planet like Earth with gases in the atmosphere, gases that don't belong, that we might be able to attribute to life. Um, so there's this sort of thing when you think about astronomy. It's this concept that the galaxy might be teeming with exoplanets that perhaps... We're not alone in the cosmos. And this is this thought that appears again over and over to astronomers, but I think it's very special when we're trying to think about other Earths that might have life. And I'm not here talking about alien life, but even so, that would be great, but more possibly a microbial life of, of any kind. So on the home front at the time in 2007, my two boys, ages 18 months and three years, start at the perfect Montessori school I found for them. My husband, Mike, We've just moved back from Washington, D.C. to New England, and we're really happy to be back here. Um, We actually just bought a really old house, an old Victorian. Um, It's very charming, of course, until you actually live in it. Um, And in Concord, right near the train. I really, looking back, I had it all. Two years later, it's 2009. It's March. We're in Florida. A lot of kids are playing at the beach. We parents are doing shop talk. In the distance, we can see a Delta II rocket at Cape Canaveral. In the rocket is the Kepler Space Telescope. A couple days later, we're at the launch. It's a spectacular nighttime launch, really unbelievable. Kepler launches, um, and the solid rocket boosters, which get it up there, 
they fall off and they're glowing. We can see them dangling and falling down into the ocean where later they'll be recovered. People are running around under the floodlights. Kepler Space Telescope was 30 years from concept to launch, so some of these people have been working on that project for decades, and they don't know whether to laugh or to cry. Kepler's goal is to determine how common Earth-sized planets are. Does every star have an Earth-sized planet, or is it more like one in 10? Kepler monitors the same part of the sky for four years, looking at 150,000 stars, looking for a tiny drop in brightness that's indicative of a planet going in front of the star as seen from the telescope. In 2009, it's a great turning point for exoplanets, but it's a terrible turning point for my family. In the fall of 2009, my husband, uh, then 45 years old, he has a nagging stomach ache that starts getting worse. The doctors completely blew him off. They just said, oh, here, take some Metamucil. So soon enough, we end up in the emergency room where he has a complete intestinal blockage. And even then, I think doctors, they just, I don't know why they have some sort of denial that they like to imprint upon you. And they just are like, well, you know, it's probably not that serious. If it's, um, he might need surgery, if it's self-contained, even if it's cancerous, he won't even need chemo. And the doctor actually said to me, Sarah, stop crying. And he huffed out of the room. I mean, talk about bedside manner. <laughs> I've written these doctors a lot of letters, but I haven't yet sent them. It's, it's, it might be coming. Okay, so um, two weeks later, Mike has surgery to remove many feet of his small intestine. The doctors tell us, you don't need it anyway. And that part actually is true. You have this sort of big repeating pattern. Um, and afterwards, it's really bad news. He, the cancer has already gone to the lymph nodes and has spread outside the intestine walls. And so it's stage three cancer. As soon as he recovers, we chemo starts. Now, with this chemo, I actually became, become obsessed with the idea of the bucket list for the living. And I actually, that summer, I asked all my friends or everybody I know, and I'm asking you now, if you're told you have... Um, and he's not here yet, but just the chemo scared me into thinking about this. If you're told you only have a, one year left to live, what would you do? What would be actually on your list? I actually want you to think about that right now. That's why I'm saying it that way. So most people will say, well, I'll spend time more with my family or I'll change my job. Occasionally, it's something much more significant. Now, what would I do? I would drop everything and just work to find the Earth 2.0. That's what we call another Earth. That would be like our own Earth around another star like the sun that we could look at the atmosphere and look for signs of life. So um, I actually am kind of curious about what you would do, but it turns out that for... Um, so then I would go back to my friends and I'd say, well, guess what? You're actually not sick at all, so why don't you go out and do those things? And you know what? Not a single one of these healthy people ever did a thing. So the flip side of that is that if you really are told you have one year left to live, you're actually going to get too sick too rapidly to actually do any of those things on your list. So that's more or less what happened to Mike. In the fall 2010, uh, we're told the chemo didn't work and he's now terminally ill with months to live. So I have this big problem on my hands because not only do I have to deal with a terminally ill spouse, but it turns out um, one of the secrets of my success was that in my early years, I, um, it, I wasn't, honestly, I wasn't pretending, but I was completely clueless about everything around the house. I never grocery shopped. I never put gas in the car. I mean, when I look back, I just can't believe how I made it through. I never should have had this old house. Um, I'd never, like, done my taxes. I actually, um, it was a crazy way to live, but I had to actually figure out how all to do all of these things. Um, and so, in, and also in that time, around 2010, the field of exoplanets was really booming. Kepler Space Telescope was starting to return hints that these small planets were very common, but I was unable to um, really participate in the fun or the gatherings or the research because I was busy at home, housebound, taking care of a sick person. 
So in the summer of 2011, Mike has been so strong, the very personification of grit. Honestly, he's a person you men here would be actually jealous of. He had the big biceps, if I may brag for a minute, he had like the big biceps. He never went to the gym. He was so strong. His endurance was literally um, unheard of. Um, and so his oncologist likened his toughness with chemo um, only to the Marines and war vets. His home hospice, Jerry, had just never seen anyone like this before, who was actually this strong. And one day, Jerry told me, you know, sir, you've got to help him let go. He thought that me, like, constantly asking him how to do stuff was a problem. So I've said goodbye a million times, and I say something like, Mike, um, this isn't even the sad part, so <laughs> we'll get there. You know, um, I love you. We had a great life together. I would do it all again, even knowing the outcome. I mean, I've said this many times. But this time I have to say, you know, I'm fine. I think I can handle it all. I can figure out how to do stuff. Um, and it turns out the only thing he was really worried about was me burning the house down. So you know how when you're like about to go to sleep and you go down and check to make sure the stove isn't on? <laughs> I don't know if it's ever on for you. It's never on for me, but I still check it because I think I, I just don't want to have that house burning down um, in the middle of the light. So I'm saying, you know, I'll be fine without you. It's okay to let go. And then I go, oops, Mike. Oh, I just remembered. I don't know how to take the roof racks off the yellow car. Um, but he's like, you know, he's a, a kind of really exhausted. He's very ill. He's like, and he just looks at me and says, it's too complicated to explain. <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm really glad you're laughing here because there are a lot of funny moments. And so, you know, to this day, three years later, actually the roof racks are still on the car. <laughs> um, and please don't offer to help me take them off, okay? I think it, it's okay. So a few weeks go by and it's July 2011. Actually, no one can ever, no one can believe he's still alive. Jerry told me he has simply never seen someone hold on like this before. And finally, a week of not after a week of literally not eating or drinking, because um, remember, he's so healthy and strong. That's the flip side to being so healthy and strong is your body just can't, it can't go away. So one um, night, I, I day, I'm lying with him in his hospital bed at home, and I'm like, Mike? And he's pretty out of it by this point, okay? He's not really totally um, with it, but he wakes up briefly, and I'm like, Mike, next week's my birthday. And he's like, they have this phrase that's, you die as you live. So he was so sweet. He's like, well, I'm not really good at remembering those things. <laughs> so at least he could remember. <laughs> it was sort of funny that he couldn't remember those things. And I'm like, Mike, it's a big one. It's my 40th. As your last gift to me, I need you to let go. And he went like, okay, 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 like 10 times. So I think he actually, he got what I was saying. And a week later, there I am, a widow at age 40. I just turned 40. I have two kids, um, age six and eight. And I have this huge old house. I don't even know how to cook. And so you know how I feel inside my head? It's like I've just hiked Mount Everest. It actually was a huge accomplishment for me to help my, you know, my best friend die at home. And I feel like I've just hiked Mount Everest, but after just having hiked all of the other World Seven Summits. And I'm done, right? Now he died, and I can get on with my life, and it should be easier. Well, that's wrong, actually. It's like as if you had just told me now, after all that hiking, I have to hike from the tip of North America to the tip of South America to the tip of South America and back. And I'm like literally at the end, at the limits of my mental um, and my actually mental and emotional capacity. So it's pretty terrible. I'm going to skip that part of the story, but just to say that it's every day, get up. It's like putting one foot in front of the other. And at some point, I realized the journey is just beginning. But in that time period, it was really... Um, Really, I'm in a really, really bad mood. Um, the world is so annoying. Everything around me is what we call ant noise. I just, everything you're doing, all the people, it just is meaningless to me. What could actually be more meaningful than what I just went through? And I just don't understand why people are fighting about trivial things, 
or they're just you know, wasting time. But actually, at the same time, um, I remarkably develop an immense sense of clarity. There are no shadows. I have the ultimate focus. I produce some of my most creative work. Um, months go by, and gradually there's a reawakening. Students um, and postdocs become my extended family. We go on vacation together. My kids adore them. My home is full of people. And actually, one of the most significant things that happened was I accidentally met Melissa and some of the other widows in my town of Concord. And these people, actually, it's going to sound a little crazy to you, but they're like among the most happiest people I know. I mean, they had an intense sadness that eventually disappears, but they're tough and strong um, and vivacious, and they have a shocking sense of dark humor. <laughs> Only the widows can have for some reason. Um, and so um, I see myself in these people. So through all of this, um, I'm becoming so mentally tough and strong, it's just unbelievable. I feel like I survived. I can do anything. I get the MacArthur Genius Award. I address Congress with the first official statement to our nation about the search for other Earths and the status of finding life beyond Earth. I tell my kids about this one evening, and one of them likes to try out his vocabulary on me, and he says, Mom, you are arrogant. <laughs> um, okay, spring 2013. By now, uh, we know from Kepler that small planets are common, far more common than Jupiter-sized planets. We may have as many as one in five stars like the sun could have an Earth that is not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. So now, actually, it becomes possible to start thinking about one that not like the Kepler planets are too far away for us to study their atmospheres, but nearby ones. And I get asked by NASA to chair a concept study to do the ultimate space telescope to go to space, send a telescope to space, and to block out the starlight to look at um, planets directly. And what we're trying to study, actually, we call it the starshade, which is like a specially shaped screen that you would put up. And it's very specially shaped to block out the starlight to one part in 10 billion. And this would fly tens of thousands of kilometers from um, the space telescope. And it's actually a great project. And I, I'm very excited to be able to do this. So people had been thinking about this for decades, but the planets, we now know the planets are out there, the technology has matured, the people have matured, <laughs> and the stars are aligned. So the funny thing is, if there's an alien civilization around one of our neighboring stars, and if they're trying to build one of these telescopes like I just described, and they look back at us, at our sun, and block out our sun, actually they'll just see a tiny point of light. Our Earth would just be like a pale blue dot. And so it's hard for me to handle my own personal tragedy here on Earth against the vastness of the universe. So all I can do is remind all of us that life can change in the blink of an eye and that we have to hold on to a sense of clarity for what really matters and that the time to make impact and to really live is now. Thanks for listening. That was Sarah Seeger. Sarah is a planetary scientist and astrophysicist. She's been a pioneer in the vast and unknown world of exoplanets, planets that orbit stars other than the sun. Now dubbed an astronomical Indiana Jones, she's on a quest after the field's holy grail, the discovery of a true Earth twin. Dr. Seeger earned her PhD from Harvard University and is now the class of 1941 professor of planetary science and professor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Professor Seeger is a 2013 MacArthur Fellow and was named in Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential in Space in 2012. 
For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org. We have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Also, we depend on listeners like you for our support. If you love the podcast, please consider donating at storycollider.org slash donate. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Avalith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Littlefield for hosting the show, and to Sarah for finding the planets. Thanks for listening. <laughs>